This is Gene Lance on the Workers' Beat Extra. I want to talk about labor history. It's the biggest secret in America because what we study in our history classes is not our history at all. It's the history of various rich and powerful people and all the wonderful things that they did as written by themselves about how great they were. Our history, the history of working people, is a big secret. We don't know much about it. But if we work at it, we can find out some things. I recently read a very long, difficult biography of John L. Lewis. It was written by Melvin Dubofsky and Warren Van Tyne and published in 1977 by Quadrangle the New York Times Book Club. It was 529 big pages in a little bitty eight-point type, so it was pretty hard to read. But the story of John L. Lewis jumps off the pages. I'm old enough to remember when John L. Lewis was the only name that most Americans knew when they talked about organized labor. He stood astride the labor movement and was the big personality that was known to everybody, even though they might not have known what he did or what he stood for. John L. Lewis was the name associated with labor, especially way back when. John L. Lewis became the president of the United Mine Workers in 1919. He gave it up in 1959, and he died in 1969. Like a lot of books about labor, this one is not really friendly toward labor. They don't hold back when it comes to saying their opinion of John L. Lewis and their opinion of him as a person was very low. They could not deny the historical fact that he was a giant in American labor. He made all the difference in the world. I found out a lot of things that I didn't know. For example, I thought it was a pretty recent idea that we should have a six-hour workday or that we should lower the working hours. But way back in 1919, the United Mine Workers, under John L. Lewis, was demanding a six-hour day and a five-day week. That was in 1919. And they were very close to getting it, too. Unfortunately, the economic situation changed, and they didn't have the power that they had when they came up with that slogan. They also demanded in 1919 that coal mining be nationalized. In other words, they wanted the government to take over all the coal mines, take them away from the capitalists that were running them, and let the government deal with the union, and they thought they would get a better deal that way. John Lewis was in favor of those slogans, but according to the book, he didn't really do much about implementing them. But what actually happened was that they went into 1919 as a very, very strong union with 500,000 members. And a few years later, 
they only had about maybe 80,000 members because the union does not control the economy. We don't say how many mines are going to be open or how much coal is going to be dug. We just do the best we can after the bosses make the big decisions. John Lewis rose through the ranks, but not because he was a better coal miner than everybody else or a stronger personality or not even his great rhetoric, not even his great gift for making speeches. He rose because he cultivated relationships. He went from just being the president of a local local mine workers union all the way up to becoming president of the whole of all the locals. And he did that primarily by cultivating relationships with other union leaders. One of the ones that he cultivated was Samuel Gompers. Gompers started the American Federation of Labor and dominated it until his death, which I think was in 1926. I know he died in San Antonio. John L. Lewis also had friends in industry. He had friends among the coal mine operators, the owners of the, of the coal mines. He had friends in the banking industry. And in fact, John L. Lewis was involved in the banking industry. According to this book, according to these authors, he was super vain and arrogant. And when he moved up in the mine workers, wasn't because he was doing a great job. It was because he was simply an opportunist. Now, opportunism is not a common word in American language, but in politics, it means someone who has no principles, who does everything for himself. And that's what Dubofsky and Van Tyne say about John L. Lewis. And they say it all the way through this book. I happen to disagree. I think that John L. Lewis was a union man. And the motivation for a union man is to do the best they can for their members. If John L. Lewis had not done very well for his members, or if he had not done as well as he could have and made the members understand that he did as well as he could have, he would not have been the great labor figure that he was. But most writers aren't union men. They wouldn't know a union man if a union man came up and smacked them across the face. So these guys, these ones who wrote this book, they didn't think much of John L. Lewis. They thought he was just a, a, a climber, you know, someone who, who got people to uh, give him things and you know, kind of a con man. But that could not possibly have been true of John L. Lewis. You can't fool 500,000 members and con that many people. But according to these authors, he basically sold out the militant miners. And one thing that they mention quite often is that he red-baited generously. Red-baiting means to call people communists, even if they're not communists. Just if you don't like them, you call them a communist and you try to get the government to jump on them. And uh, according to these authors, he was a big red baiter. A lot of union members were, in fact, most of them, I would say. The book also says that some of his supporters at one point beat up their opponents, and that's possible. 
Some things like that have happened in American labor history. I don't know the situation. I don't know who the opponents were. I don't know who was doing the beating up. And the book didn't even say that John L. Lewis ordered them to do that, uh, but they just said that it happened. Things that happened during that period, the Battle of Blair Mountain happened in August of 1921. A lot of people don't know about the Battle of Blair Mountain, but it was very, very significant in American labor history. The miners were marching and they were attacked by the U.S. Army and its U.S. Army Air Force. They were actually bombed from the air by the government in August of 1921. So the Battle of Blair Mountain is one of the worst examples of the government breaking the Union's activities. In 1922, John L. Lewis led the largest single coal miners strike in United States history. That was a big one. And during that strike, something happened that I did not know about. It's a shameful event called the Heron Massacre. This happened in Heron County, Illinois. There was a fight in the coal mines. The scabs and the deputy sheriffs armed themselves and tried to mine the coal when the regular miners were on strike. The regular miners armed themselves and attacked the mine. So there was an actual battle in June of 1922. This is the kind of thing that used to happen in labor prior to 1935. So the workers in Heron County, Illinois, were victorious in their battle against the scabs and the deputy sheriffs, and they took them prisoner. Here's the shameful part. After winning an armed battle with the strike breakers and the guards, miners took them prisoners. They drove their prisoners along, and some of them got carried away and murdered 19 of them. That was the Heron Massacre of 1922 in Heron County, Illinois. John L. Lewis blamed it all on the communists. <laughs> Another historical character that was very interesting, and I've read several books about William Z. Foster and his Trade Union Education League. William Z. Foster came out of the Industrial Workers of the World, and, but he had the idea of trying to penetrate within the unions that existed, and try to make them into more militant and more capable and more uh, effective unions. So William Z. Foster, of course, wanted to get into the Mine Workers Union because it was the biggest union at that time. But William Z. Foster was also a communist, and Lewis, of course, red-baited him. Lewis used the occasion to slather all of his enemies with red paint, and destroy them all. After 1926 or so, Lewis was the unchallenged dictator within the Union, according to these authors. They call him a dictator. All of the district directors who had previously kept the Union in uh, turmoil lost out, not because John Lewis was able to outmaneuver them, but because the union was losing so many members during that period, 
So the district directors lost their clout, and the union apparently dropped from 500 members, 500,000 members, to a, to less than 100,000. They did win the 1922 strike, but what they one of the main factors that that made them win was they got a two million dollar loan from the Harriman Bank. Well, Harriman was one of the friends of John L. Lewis. As I said, he had banker friends. But Lewis reigned supreme there after 1922, but he was reigning over a union that was really beat up. However, the economic situation changed. In 1932, John Lewis supported one of his buddies, Herbert Hoover. Herbert Hoover was running against Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Hoover was the Republican. Roosevelt was the Democrat. Roosevelt won the election and took office in March of 1933. Even before that, John L. Lewis was touting the outline for what they later on would call the New Deal. It was, in other words, a new deal for working people. At the AFL conventions beginning in 1933, he spoke up for industrial organizing. Now I'm going to have to explain what industrial organizing was because the mine workers organized everybody in the mine. If you drove a mule, you were in the mine workers. If you picked up coal, you were a mine worker. If you slung a pick, you were a mine worker. If you shoveled with a shovel, you were a mine worker. Everybody in the mines was a mine worker. But most unions were not like that. Most unions were what we call craft unions. And people in different crafts would have a separate union. There was a union just for electricians. There was a union just for machinists. There was a union just for teamsters, people that drove the horses. So everybody did not belong in the same union. If they had, that would be called industrial organizing. John Lewis was in favor of industrial organizing because he saw it working with the mine workers. But the craft unions were dead set against him. And the craft unions were the ones who dominated the American Federation of Labor. Gompers himself, who started the American Federation of Labor, was a craft unionist. He was a cigar roller. And he started the American Federation of Labor with the idea that only the craft unions could form, only the craftsmen, the highly skilled and highly paid workers, could form unions. Even before that time, John L. Lewis tried to increase the executive board of the AFL. They only had eight members on their executive board, and he wanted 25 in order to be more democratic and represent more of the union movement. Along about that time, John Lewis becomes a hero. Now, the authors of this book call him just an opportunist and a kind of a con man up to this time. But even then, after 1933, you had to call John L. Lewis a great man, a great hero of labor. Now, there's a story you may have heard and you may not have heard. In the 1935 
Convention of the American Federation of Labor, John L. Lewis got up and said, let us start industrial unions. Let's go over there where they're making automobiles and let's organize everybody, whether they're highly skilled or not skilled, whether they're machinists or whether they're just pushing a broom. Let's organize all of them and organize them industrially. And let's do that with the steel unions. Let's do that with the meat cutting unions. Let's do that with agriculture. Let's do that with every worker in America. Let's organize them all. And I don't mean just white men. He said, I want African-Americans. He said, I want women. I want immigrants. Everybody organized in an industrial basis. Well, the craft unions did not like it. And one of John L. Lewis's friends was named Bill Hutchison. He was the head of the Carpenters Union, a craft union. You had to be a skilled carpenter to be in his union. He didn't want the other people in the construction industry, only the skilled carpenters. And he did not like the idea of industrial unionism. And he went so far as to cuss John L. Lewis a little bit. Well, John L. Lewis was a, a large man. Well, so was Bill Hutchison. They were both large men. But John L. Lewis jumped over a row of chairs, ran up to Bill Hutchison, and smacked him in the nose and knocked him for a row of ash cans. And that was the punch that started the Committee for Industrial Organizing. John L. Lewis was able to get enough people to vote with him to start industrial unionizing as a committee of the American Federation of Labor. Now, the crafts unions did not like it. They were forever trying to stop the industrial organizing. They were forever trying to get the highly skilled craftsmen out of the new unions and to split those new unions up and get rid of the people that were pushing the broom and the people that weren't making a lot of money and people that were not highly skilled. So they went back and forth fighting over it for the next three years and then eventually the American Federation of Labor kicked them out. And so the Committee for Industrial Organizing had to reform and they took the time to rename themselves the Congress of Industrial Organizations with the new president John L. Lewis. Even this book of authors that did not like John L. Lewis very much, even this book says John L. Lewis started the CIO. That was his great accomplishment. Something else that I didn't know as I read this book was that John L. Lewis very, very reluctantly led this split. He did not want a split in the AFL-CIO. He wanted to keep the labor movement together, and he kept on trying to get them together all the way through the rest of his career. So John L. Lewis was not a nasty little splitter, like some people would have said. He was, in fact, a union man, through and through, someone to look up to. John L. Lewis and the Congress of Industrial Organizations started off with practically no members, and in their first few months, 
they had a sit-down strike at General Motors and ended up organizing hundreds of thousands of union members. By 1937, by the time they were kicked out of the AF of L, they had more members than the AF of L did. And it's true, they weren't skilled members, they weren't the highly paid members, but they were larger. At the end of August 1937, the CIO had 3,419,600 members, which was more than the American Federation of Labor. A lot of things happened after that to John L. Lewis. Uh, he was infamous because in 1939, when America was getting ready to go to war, he spoke out strongly against the war. And when Franklin Delano Roosevelt ran for a third term, an unprecedented third term, John L. Lewis spoke out against Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Then after the war started in 1943, when the coal mine the coal mine owners, the what they call the operators, when they were trying their best to drive the union members back into starvation, John L. Lewis took the, the union coal miners out on strike during the war. So this was largely misunderstood and hated. He was seen as being uh, in favor of the Japanese or in favor of the Nazis because he led a strike in 1943 and because he opposed uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. At the end of the war, we had a strike wave, 1946. Now, today in 2021, people are beginning to use the word strike wave a little bit because there have been maybe 100,000 people on strike in the past month, or at least 100,000 people who have voted that they wouldn't mind going on strike in the past month. But listen to these numbers. In November of 1945, at the end of World War II, 200,000 General Motors workers walked out of their plants. Two months later, 300,000 meat packers and 180,000 electrical workers struck and were followed shortly thereafter by 750,000 steel workers. In all, there were 4,630 work stoppages involving 5 million strikers and totaling 12 million idle workdays. That all happened in the 12 months following Japan's surrender in 1945. While there was very little physical violence, they generated violent emotions because many people did not want the union people to go on strike and they feared the unions would disrupt their economic security. After the strike wave, Americans were bitter toward organized labor and that may help explain what happened in 1947. What did happen in 1947, well really it started in 1946, was that the government turned against labor with a vengeance. The government hadn't liked John L. Lewis, 
Well, I don't think they ever liked John L. Lewis, but they certainly didn't like him after 1939. Labor suffered terribly after 1947. John L. Lewis went on to dominate the mine workers and to get good contracts for the mine workers all the way up until he retired in 1959. And he was seen as a labor statesman right up until his death in 1969. John L. Lewis was a union man. You couldn't say anything better. John L. Lewis was a union man. This is Gene Lance on the Workers Beat Extra.